Who says tech can't be human? I think you have to understand what is going to motivate you to see something through to the end and don't pick things, don't work on things that you don't care about. You're going to have your, the most success in your life focusing on things that matter to you. Welcome to the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley Studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again with a fellow security tinkerer. We have Taylor Lehman as a guest this episode. Taylor is a director at Google Cloud, leading healthcare and life sciences vertical for the offices of the CISO. Taylor, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. It's awesome. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. One thing that stands out to me about you is your ability to connect with people, to work with people. You really put people first. You gave a presentation at TinkerCon, and it really just highlighted how much people mean to you and how much people really resonate with the stuff that you're putting out into the world. You were speaking right before we hopped on the podcast about being brought into situations where things might be hard for teams or individuals, and you have a, a bit of a process. Could you walk us a little bit through that process that you take people through? Sure. I want to say first, like I'm stunned that you remember that TinkerCon presentation. Well done. You've got a the memory of an elephant. That's so <laughs> pretty cool. I need to find that deck. Maybe it'll find its way on social media soon. It should. But yeah, I mean, I think the core, right? People are at the center of everything. All of our success and failure, our ability to learn and move forward is often a matter of finding the things that are going to motivate folks. And part of it is also finding the blockers that are standing in people's way. A lot of the work that I do, even though I work in the engineering org at Google, a lot of the work that I do, I find myself in rooms with some pretty senior security and technology executives who are struggling to organize the team, motivate the group. Often, it almost always starts with, hey, we need to be more secure. But what I end up finding out in more cases than not is it's not about a tool. It's not about a security control you don't understand or how to make it work, whether it's on cloud or on-prem, whatever. It's usually not a technical issue. It's almost always a getting teams aligned to working together to some shared outcome that they both believe in and they both want and helping people set those goals and create the motivating factors to get them to work together and also get rid of blockers. And in most cases, it's Training and awareness tends to be one of the big ones. But oftentimes, it's just like being nice to each other. Organizationally, not used to doing it. In some cases, don't want to do it. So anyway, with respect to the framework, I think you asked me about, yeah, so I find myself in these meetings, and it's always three high-level steps I usually use to diagnose where things are. And the first is you always start with a hug or a compliment or something nice. Right. Because we're all people at the end of the day, and hugs are free. Although, depending on the environment, you may want to get consent first. But I think the whole gesture of thankfulness and kindness is underused. But always starting with, hey, I'm glad you're here. Thank you. Appreciate you inviting me and giving people the confidence to move forward. I think the second is getting people to express the challenge, but help them acknowledge and repeat out what are the constraints that they think they're subject to them and what are the things they think are holding them back. Because chances are, and this is almost true for everything, is we all operate in a world where we think certain constraints exist a certain way. We think budget is limited. We think my team can only do so much. We think that that team over there is a bunch of jerks and don't know what they're doing or they don't have the skills or this vendor would never work with me like that 
or whatever. We architect these constraints that modify or that prevent our ability to really think outside of the box and think about how we could actually solve problems and what we need from people. And so the questions are, is that really a problem? What if we thought about it this way? What if we thought about it that way? And really getting people to think outside of their own constraints is usually the second piece. And once we get people with the term, the neuroplasticity, if you will, thinking outside of the box and understanding what the real constraints are and which ones aren't, it's to then aggressively set and execute against priorities. Because there's nothing better than making progress and moving fast. And with moving fast is the also the expectation that you're going to fail a bunch of times. And that's okay, but that is part of the process that goes together is making decisions, testing ideas, testing hypotheses, learning from whether it went well or it didn't. But don't architect things that get in the way of speed because speed is the thing. It does scare people to move quickly, to change controls, to deploy new systems, whatever. But doing it safely in a way where you fail and it doesn't make a huge difference other than you learn something from it is like definitely the next set of things that people need to work on. And so I usually try to steer a lot of these conversations back to those three constraints. For most part, I'd say it works pretty well. It gets people moving to a new future. What did you say number three was, constraint? Not so much a constraint, but the tactic in the framework is prioritization, aggressive execution of those priorities, and then complementing this with this belief that it's okay to fail. Once we've understood what the real constraints are, it's about executing and testing. That's what point three is about. I love the fact that you start with a hug or a compliment or whatever it may be, because a lot of times when we're dealing with security, there's tension. There is the uncertainty. You want to be successful, but you were saying maybe you don't feel as though the other teams, the budget, other constraints are working on your side. But maybe they are. It's just a rule. And the rule is a constraint. And rules are the boundaries that help you win the game. What have you really seen to be the slowdown or the hiccup when it comes to people working together? Because I hear a lot. Part of it is maybe people working remote. Meetings are too large. People can't speak over each other on a Zoom meeting. But it also could be something else. What have you seen as the common denominator these days? The shared goals. Does the security department, are they the only one who wants to be secure? Does everybody? Because I guarantee you in the latter you have a chance to be more secure, depending if that's a goal. Or if it's, we want to get on the cloud faster. This is the one that I deal with a lot because I work at Google Cloud. How do I get to instrument and secure the cloud effectively? And the answer to that is, one, getting people used to the cloud, getting people trained up on how to use it, but then it's to set a shared goal that multiple teams who want a certain outcome can be a part of and execute against. And what I mean by that is, I'll give an example. We want to deploy applications into the cloud that are secure from the top 10 OWASP security vulnerabilities. And so that is a security goal, but that is also a developer and an engineering goal that could also be an operational goal for teams operating. And you set that goal, and it needs to be obviously more measurable than I made it, but let's just say 95% of applications have executed a security test. The security team has deployed as a tactic to get to that goal. When you set that goal out there and you say, okay, all three teams, this is a goal you have. This is measured, whether it's through your formal goal-making framework at work, pushed down through your corporate HR teams, or if it's some commitment you make to each other, both are fine. But the second you create a goal where those three teams are forced effectively to work together to, to get that outcome, that's when you know you're there. Is In order to make progress against that, it drives collaboration between groups. And that's what I mean by a shared goal. Even when teams have this shared goal, there are definitely times of turbulence, especially if you're doing something like a digital transformation. Maybe you're moving your entire 
infrastructure from on-prem to the cloud. I'm sure there's still organizations out there doing that. What are some of the things that you tell them as they go through the tougher times during that? There might be some miscommunications. There might be competing priorities. What are some of the things that you're using to coach people through some of those times? I was going to quote my boss's blog, but I didn't want to do it incorrectly. So I I will pause that idea for fear of my own failure and survival. So with respect to like digital transformation, and that is more than just migrating your stuff to the cloud, it's more about rethinking how you do business to becoming more data-driven. I'd say at the early stages, putting training aside, training and enablement, and let's also assume that we've got shared goals. I think the things that speak to me as the things that I often find teams struggling, not working together well, walking in with groups who are fighting each other, what's almost always present is a lack of a common place to where work is occurring, meaning a common repository where information about the work that each team has done or is doing is located, a common place to find that work, a common place to show where that individual efforts add up to and then result in a product or a service running, and then disagreement around how that work is then sustained and supported. And so if you express that same concept in terms of like technology, or excuse me, it's organizationally, what you end up finding is that teams who are in the midst of cloud transformation haven't transformed their organization, then they haven't transformed the way they do work, and everyone's operating in these silos. And back to the point, but I'll use another example around a shared goal. What's often missing is this like shared vision of how work will get done. To express that technically, to me, that means we've got priorities on setting up centralized code repositories where code, e-work, is stored. That's important for a number of areas, the most being that now other teams can see what other teams are working on. And it has version control and access control and all that. But more importantly, it's a place where teams can go to see what each other is doing. That lowers the barriers around collaboration because now we're not hiding our work from each other. We can all see it. We can all learn from it. The second is having a common backlog. So a common place to go and see what work is about to happen, what priorities are being given to work. That's even more visibility into what's been done and what's about to happen. And again, these things usually aren't present in dysfunctional organizations. But as you move up and you see these orgs who are really good at cloud, you start to see that there's, hey, there's a lot of depth in these areas. I'd say the third area is like common build and test systems. And common build and test systems, and this is really important for being good at security in cloud, because this is where, for the most part, many of the tools and many of the visibility that security teams need, this is where they hook up, is if they're doing it right and they're shifting left, that means security teams are looking at the builds and they're testing the builds using automated test plans and automated testing systems, but they're doing it as part of the work process. So if you've got a common backlog, common repository for all the work, common mechanism for producing objects and testing them, you're on your way. And your security teams are probably operating at a higher level of maturity because you've got those foundational pieces in place. Assuming you deploy from build system post-testing and you've got software running in production, again, characteristic of teams, I think, that are higher performing. They've done a really good job of implementing runtime protection monitoring of those workloads. Again, provide another visibility mechanism to all these teams who are involved in the process of building it and testing it and getting it out there. Now they can see it running and they can begin to build accountabilities for keeping it that way. Not just up and running, but also secure. And so what you're really doing by streamlining and instrumenting the way you work is you're increasing visibility, which means you're building trust between these groups, you're enabling your security team to be high-performing, and you're ultimately building this sense of cooperation to make it work is really a result of the empathy that everybody builds for each other along the way. I love what you're describing because it's a lot of systems mindset, it's a lot of an engineering mindset, And I think that's how I think and love to work as well. But 
Let's talk about healthcare. You've been chief information security officer time and time again, working with healthcare organizations and now leading initiatives at Google Cloud. What has been your experience with healthcare? Do healthcare organizations have this mindset where they're thinking processes, where they have the engineering mindset, or is it something a bit different? I think I've seen all sorts. I think what's nice about working in cloud now is coming out of years of healthcare, working in hospitals where folks were convinced they had to stay on prem in order to make their electronic medical records work. We're successfully eroding away, getting rid of that belief. And we have more and more healthcare customers coming to cloud to run their critical electronic health record systems, patient monitoring systems, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's largely because healthcare's figuring it out. They see an opportunity to reduce toil on their end and try to manage a complex web of systems and manage a high security bar. They're seeing how much easier that can be on cloud. And so for me, it's nice to see that more health systems than I'd say in the last five years have decided to move to a modern infrastructure where most of the hard stuff is done for you, leaving you to do fewer security tasks, but important ones. But I think there's still room to go. I don't see every health system here in Boston with the big cloud initiative. Cloud isn't the answer for everything, but certainly many of the issues we read about in the paper I think we'd be reading about far fewer if we had people using modern infrastructure that could be maintained more easily by fewer people within the budgets of these organizations. And I do think that's something that cloud offers. So I'd like to see more technology risk-taking. I'd like to see more aggressive adoption of new platforms, including cloud. I'm generally positive. I think healthcare is moving in the right direction. It does seem like it's moving in the right direction. When you look at the threat landscape today, you see a lot of attacking organizations looking at healthcare as a soft target because you're right, there are a lot of really large companies that are having to go through these digital transformations. And sometimes it's hard to really get started or even do it in a way that's quick. When you look at the maturity of health organizations and being more security minded, what are some of the things that you're seeing out there in the landscape today? The organizations that fund their security programs usually have a high security level I've achieved. I know that like is like the least shocking detail ever disclosed on this podcast, but (laughs) I think it's true. The more folks are investing in their security teams, the better. And unfortunately in healthcare, this has been the case. It still is in many respects that the investment in the technology and the people and the training and all in in areas all around security isn't really where it needs to be, except for the large sophisticated health systems, the biotech and life sciences organizations that are publicly traded, the sophisticated health payers, those organizations I would call are the haves. And there are many have-nots still lingering. And I think the trend I'm seeing in this respect is the have-nots are going to continue to struggle until they make the jump to modern security platform, or excuse me, modern technology platform. Otherwise, those areas are probably not going to get better. Now, there are places that are definitely doing this, and there are some great examples, but there are far fewer of them than there are examples today. And Frankly, it's really important because it's tough to tell on the outside as a patient or as a consumer if a health system is somebody who actually invests in security or not. I don't know if anyone's ever gone into the ED and asked them, 
how up to date is your antivirus? No one has done that. Although that would be an interesting thing if it were to occur. But long story short, no one is yet making decisions on where they go get healthcare based on security. But I think if they knew who the haves were versus who the have-nots were and the likelihood that they would suffer something negative as a result of a security incident due to an underinvested system, I think that would change things. I think that would be an interesting perspective. I'm certainly hoping nothing like that happens. But I do think that some interesting thoughts I've, I've been having. I'd say on the other side, so this is a question about threat landscape, and I know we got to stop talking because I go on and on without coaching. But digital extortion is still an effective tool that motivates threat actors to do things in healthcare. There hasn't been anything that's changed about healthcare recently that has made digital extortion any less desirable than it was a year ago. There are many soft targets. The impact of an outage is high, which means theoretically payment and other types of outcomes that a threat actor might be after are much more likely to be realized due to the fact that Healthcare, in a sense, still deals with patients and healthcare information, and an outage has the potential of harming someone. We're going to still see more and innovative attacks of different ways, whether it's the supply chain, whether it's phishing, whether it's ransomware, whatever. But as long as high likelihood of payment made in a digitally extorted organization remains, I think we're going to continue to see aggressive and increasing threats or attacks on these environments. I'm optimistic. I think there are some very good things going on in the world. I think what the FDA has recently talked about doing with some of its pre- and post-market guidance on medical devices is really encouraging. I've seen what the health and public health sector coordinating councils have been doing has been great. They're putting out great guidance. I think the Health ISAC, which is a threat intelligence sharing community, has really, its membership has grown considerably, meaning more organizations are getting into this and wanting to be great at security. Those are great signs, and I hope they do eventually result in an increase of cost for attackers who are looking to target the industry, so much of an increase that maybe digital extortion isn't really going to pay as well or or have the incentives that other bad guys want to be present in their work and they just go somewhere else. I'm hoping and I think we're on our path to get into that future. Well, I could tell you what, before I go to another doctor, another hospital, I'm calling you and I'm saying, hey, are these records secure? Am I okay to share my information? (laughs) I'd say take a picture of the infusion pump or the medical equipment they're going to hook up to your body and look up whether it's been recalled on the FDA database. That'd be the check. Snoop over your nurse's shoulder and look at the version of Windows they're running. (laughs) Something like that. Don't do any of those. There are ways to learn more. I love the positivity that you have despite all the doom and gloom that's out there. Of course, we can lose our records and our sensitive information, our personal information could be stolen, but you have a positive outlook. You're saying that as a team, we can work together. We can create a shared goal. We can move forward. Tell us a story about a turnaround that you've seen at a healthcare organization that you've worked with or for. There's bits and pieces. So I was with an organization that was doing very significant project to acquire a very significant customer. And in order to acquire that customer, we had to transform our team. We had to digitally transform security in particular to bring both the product and the team's the organization I was working with, to a level of maturity and sophistication that they needed to be at in order to satisfy this customer's needs. And this was a couple of years ago. I learned a lot about the guidance I'm giving today from two people during this engagement. One was a, a gentleman who ran a part of the security program that was focused on the security supply chain. The other was a person from my customer who was on me, pushing me to make sure that we were driving to have the highest bar possible on what we were doing and that we did it in ways that were sustainable, not just necessarily easy, not something that was going to check a box, but something that was really going to have lasting value. And I think from the first get-go, I watched my team member approach our engineering organization with this kindness and empathy and this hug 
that was needed that I was a little surprised about at the time. And I was like, why? We've got a job to do. Commercial deadlines are what they are. We got to deliver. And I know it took us a little bit longer, but I think that upfront trust building, friendship building, compassion building, empathy piece was a real secret to a lot of the success we then subsequently had when we had in the next 12 months to turn an organization with a very large number of engineers and developers and DBAs who previously did not work in a way that was going to muster with this particular project, but it ended up being probably the most important single thing we did, which wasn't a security thing at all. And a lot of that work was around, too, like challenging constraints that we had, challenging norms that we had as an active part of what we were doing. And it was part of the dialogue that we were having with teams throughout was really like pushing, hey, can we set some goals that bust through constraints or myths? And we did. And shared goals played a big role in that too. But then I think on my customer's side, pushing us to be aggressive, make decisions and not penalizing us for failure, even though times it may have been difficult to maintain faith that we were going to get it done. I think the process of setting aggressive goals, time boxing things, and then being available to work, coach, train, counsel, what have you, as we experienced learning, it's probably a better way. Failure is, what is it? First attempt in learning, I think it's the acronym. As we experienced our first attempts in learning, having that uh, positive encouragement and again, those deadlines to work up against really made a, a big difference. And it really, the combination of those things and those people allowed us to take a basically program where very little was being done to one I would say is a, at a very high level of maturity according to I think we used BSIM, the building security and maturity model. By the time we were done, we were operating at a top-tier application security program for this particular organization. So mixing in a few different things. I also would mention that how we got work done and organized work through common backlogs, repos, build and test systems, deployment and production monitoring were a huge part of allowing us to scale our security program. That gave us the coverage we needed to get this over the finish line. So a couple different things mixed in there, but I'd say that is a success story that I'm pretty happy with. Yeah, I'd say that speaks to both your mindset on mission, but then also mindset on the people that you lead and work with. We touched on your humanistic style of leadership in the very beginning of the podcast. Is there a moment that you can think of from your past that really nailed that home for you? Was there a turning point in your leadership or even in your career or in your life that turned everything around and made you the leader that you are today? Yeah, I can think of a very particular moment. I had surgery, my own surgery, and I woke up in a hospital bed and it was a pretty interesting surgery. Let's put it that way. It was a my shoulder, very long procedure. And to a certain degree, it was something that had to get done. It had a certain sense of urgency attached to it. And I remember waking up in the recovery room and looking around at all the equipment that was attached to my body. It wasn't like pumping my blood, but it was delivering drugs. It was alerting the physician who was on call if I had an issue or not. There was all this monitoring equipment attached. And I remember taking out my cell phone because I couldn't use my right arm for this period of time and starting to take pictures of all the equipment. Did that thing I mentioned, which was went to the FDA database, <laughs> went to the recall section and started comparing what the stuff was that was hooked up to me versus what had been listed for recall. Basically, hey, this equipment needs to come back and get fixed for something or can no longer be sold. And I found quite a few matches on that. Last night, I had like 25 devices in the room. So I went through every one of them. More than five had active issues on them and CVEs and other things. It wasn't just the FDA, but if you went to the National Vulnerability Database, you saw things there. And I just remember thinking at that moment, I cannot let this happen to other people. 
this cannot be the standard of care. And like, if I'm in charge of security and healthcare, like I have to prevent moments like this where I'm smart enough to know to look in these areas, or maybe I'm not smart enough to go look, who knows? I probably had several anxiety attacks while I was there. When you start paying attention to the details and you see the reality in some of these cases, in many respects for me, my purpose changed coming out of that. My life, in effect, depended on equipment that couldn't be trusted. And I needed to do something about it, not just for myself, but for the next person who was going to lie in this bed. And so that changed a lot of perspective on how I think about things. And it also reminds me of a story, and I'll tell this one quicker than I told the last, but I remember in 2004, I was doing some consulting work for a health insurance company in Boston. And it was like the day HIPAA went live, like basically it went from just being a proposed rule to now a rule that would be enforced. And the security team runs up to me. He's like, hey, Taylor, check it out. We're HIPAA compliant. I go, hey, how do you know? And they handed me a stack of paper and said, look, we wrote our policies. Check it out. We're good. And I remember thinking, like, really? So that you're done? Check? You have a stack of paper in there. Like, yeah, we're done. We're meeting the law. It's okay. And just thinking at that time, not realizing that in 20 years, fast forward, or not 20, 15 years later, I'd be sitting in a room with equipment that was effectively unsafe to use as a result of that thinking back in 2004. Years of engineering and beliefs around engineering and beliefs around security had caught up with me 15 years. And I didn't do anything about it in 2004. And it found me in the position I was in 2015. And I was, okay, it stops now. So that's what it is for me. I think that's a huge learning lesson, not just for cybersecurity practitioners and leaders, but really anybody. It seems we're always setting up our future selves for failure. Even this morning, I was like, ah, I could get up right now, get everything going early, or I could wait an additional 10 minutes in bed, kick it around, and I'll leave the chaos for future Chris to deal with. For the folks out there that are dealing with new legislation, they're dealing with new technologies, new threats, but they feel like they can put things off to the future and they don't have to do the work now. What is that piece of advice or wisdom that you would convey to those folks right now? I think you have to understand what it's going to motivate you to see something through to the end and don't pick things, don't work on things that you don't care about. You're going to have your, the most success in your life focusing on things that matter to you. I'd also say you can't obviously can't say yes to everything. So you have to be ruthless in what you do pick because there may be many opportunities. Like in healthcare, there's tons of opportunities to improve what I just mentioned, that story I told. But I need to pick the ones that require the least effort and have the highest impact both now and in the future. And that doesn't mean I'm lazy. It just means I want to solve as many of them as I can versus solve one or two. And I also believe that hey, sometimes solving the first 10 make the next 10 a lot easier. Beliefs around picking things you care about that matter to you. And there's just being ruthless in how you prioritize indexing towards things that are achievable and have the highest impact possible. Well said. Stay true to the things that are most important and make a plan for it. That's all we really can do. And I loved your acronym for FAIL as well. I'm definitely going to start using that myself. Taylor, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to jump on the mics with us. For anyone listening that wants to stay in touch with Taylor and also follow him on his journey, we have dropped Taylor's information and resources into the show notes down below wherever you're listening. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. If you found value in this content, it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend, or talked about it over coffee.